0: I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode.
1: Generally speaking, the companies that I started with working for uh, were very client oriented, service based uh, companies, just as much as they were delivering a product being acquired by publicly traded companies that are motivated by shareholders, units, and profitability. So I think understanding that now, having gone through it, gives me a certainly a different perspective than I had in the moment. And I think conveying that to the team at the time, just open, honest, transparent communication and conversation in the two instances where it was done very effectively made all the difference in the world. in short and long-term success in contrast to really just trying to beat the group over the head and force your will, push your way into the market, and let the chips fall where they may. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold.
0: Our guest today is COO Alliance member and Collins Builders COO Tim Calderella. Born in Chicago and raised outside of Columbia, South Carolina, Tim has spent his entire career involved in all aspects of residential construction and real estate. And he has his BS in business management with a minor in psychology from the University of South Carolina. Tim has worked with four different home builders over his career. Four of them actually gone through acquisitions, being acquired by public companies. He's going to talk to us about the experience of being acquired, working with inside of public companies, and now running a high-end custom home builder and what differentiates them with the rest of the people in his industry. He's also going to talk a lot about um, how he's growing his people and how to retain people in an industry that is notorious for people quitting and moving on quickly. They've built quite the company. You're going to love his lessons. And we'll see you on the inside. So Tim, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Cameron. Yeah, nice to see you. And, um, also you're a COO Alliance member. So it's nice to have you back and, and helping to grow this. We've had over 310 podcast guests now over the last six years and welcome to the show. Looking forward to learning from you. Why don't you, um, before we talk a little bit about Collins Builders and, and, um, you know, some of the stuff that you're working on day to day, why don't you give us a little bit of a helicopter tour as kind of your bio? How did you get here?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I had family around the construction industry growing up and, Against all advice and my own initial will, uh, <laughs> I went to school for business to get away from it and ended up in it anyway. So right out of school, uh, got an opportunity with a family-run company in Nashville, cut my teeth in the industry there for five or six years, uh, had the luxury of going through an acquisition for the first time, got to experience new corporate uh, structure and uh, an approach. So that was unique. At a, a young age at that, moved my family down to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, did it again. I went, joined a small mom-and-pop uh, local company, was part of a team to grow it, uh, sold, <laughs> and went through a corporate uh, transition again. I've done that four times now. Finally, in a position now where uh, my commitment with my current CEO is to be able to see some of the fruit of our labors uh, over
0: a longer term. Do you think that those companies, the four companies that you helped uh, build the cell, did they know that going in? Like, did they know that that's what they were, their plan was or did that just happen kind of by the way?
1: In two cases, it was uh, extremely deliberate. They knew all along that was going to be the case. That wasn't necessarily mentioned to me when I began with them, but uh, it was certainly the intent. The other two, I think, happened more organically. When did
0: they tell you? Can you walk us through kind of each of the four? And were there any lessons? Like, did they? Because there's, there's a bit of an art and a science to that in terms of, you know, loose lips sink ships, right? When do you tell the, the employees? When do you tell your key employees? And, and maybe where were you in, in each of those companies in terms of your role? That might help us to know why they told you or didn't.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing question. I learned a lot uh, in all four situations have been handled very differently. So I gained a unique perspective and understanding sometimes uh, ways to handle that to your point that uh, I think are uh, well-managed and executed. And I think there's uh, certainly been a few instances where that has not been the case. In all cases, I was in managerial roles. And in uh, the two cases that were far more intentful there was much more uh, tight-lipped, last-minute, not super effective communication, and as you can imagine, decent fallout and turnover as a result. Terrible anxiety within the team and anxiousness, and all those things that are fairly counterproductive uh, to a company. Uh, on the other hand, the, the two that were uh, more focused on the future and growth and continuity, building off of what they were purchasing. There was far more notice, far more integration into the process with the existing team, more collaboration and best practices and uh, how to work together to make the transition as smooth and effective as possible.
0: Interesting. Kind of going through one acquisition is is big learning, right? When you're in a company and you've gone through one acquisition, you go through some big learning, going through four you could You could effectively write a book on on what it's like to go through that and and what the ups and downs are and what some of the pros and cons are. What were some of the lessons that you learned how you know in, in the companies that were acquiring you, what do you think they did well and what could they have done better and then in in being the acquired company, can you give us any lessons
1: there as well? Yeah, wow, a lot, and to your point, yeah, a lot uh, came out of that, uh, good and bad. So I would say from the perspective of the company that it was acquiring us, I certainly understood in two cases that pace and uh, effectiveness in putting their agenda into the new market was absolutely number one, the top priority. Uh, Keep in mind, all four companies that uh, were involved in these acquisitions were publicly traded, purchasing privately owned uh, entities. So right out of the gate, by default, you've got a conflict in principles and uh, ultimately goals. Generally speaking, the companies that I started with working for uh, were very client-oriented, service-based uh, companies just as much as they were delivering a product being acquired by publicly-trained companies that are motivated by shareholders, units, and profitability. So I think... Um, understanding that uh now having gone through it gives me a certainly a different perspective than i had in the moment and i think conveying that to the team at the time just open honest transparent communication and conversation in the two instances where it was done very effectively made all the difference in the world in short and long-term success in contrast to Really, just trying to beat the group over the head and force your will, push your way into the market, and let the chips fall where they may. How about being acquired? When
0: you're the the company that's being acquired, what do you think you guys did well at the leadership team, management team level? You know, in terms of communication, in terms of organization, in terms of the like merging in, or was it was it out of your hands and you were just kind of doing what you're told at that point?
1: Yeah, I think in the two cases where it was far more collaborative, certainly exponentially more effective not only in employee retention, continuity, even the transition uh, in the buy-in and shift from one product to another. Uh, in this case, uh, both cases, we were higher in luxury custom home building and we were converting to more production, cost-effective type uh, com- homes. And so in that transition, it takes a little buy-in. You're selling a new product all of a sudden. And so those, uh, from my perspective, being able to have a voice in that, to understand it, to, uh, especially through the transition as you're out with the old product and in with the new, uh, I think uh, those two companies that were sensitive to that, that listened, uh, that allowed us some leeway to make that a proper and smooth transition, the client ultimately was the one that benefited the most versus the other two where we had little say or input and uh it it was just a mandate.
0: How long do you think it took for those acquisitions for you or companies to feel like you were a part of their team, for you like to feel like, okay, we're all we're all one now. Is it like a one month thing, six month, two years?
1: Yeah, I think the two that did it well. I think um because they integrated themselves physically into the process, I think that made a big difference too. Now keep in mind this has been 15, 20 years ago. So technology wasn't quite what it is today. However, I think just the physical presence, the uh, humanizing of the experience, I think in 30 days really got a team bought in, committed, and traveling in the right direction. Uh, I would chalk that up to strong leadership really as much as anything else.
0: And then what about being a part of a publicly traded company? What does that change in terms of the culture and what are any lessons that you can impart from those?
1: Yeah. uh, So I'm back working for a privately held company again for a reason. (laughs) Uh, certainly has its place. And I certainly admire those folks. We need those kind of companies, right? Uh, but uh, I personally am, uh, I favor a more intimate relationship with my clientele, having a little more flexibility and collaborative type environments that uh, I think the lack of hindrance of certain processes, procedures, mandates, if you will, in our environment allows us really to thrive more versus being in that uh, corporate black and white
0: environment. So you're you're with Collins Builders now. You've been there for nine years. What's the kind of walk us through that company? What's What do you guys focus on? What's the, the rough size of the organization, just so we can get a bit of a feel for that?
1: Oh, it's been amazing. I'll be 10 years uh, this next year. Ironically, I came on to a company that was building a lower price point, value-driven type product, and they were doing it well. My intent was uh, coming out of uh, the recession to diversify the company. My background in higher-end luxury custom building offered an opportunity to do to expand our footprint, uh, to go into a new niche in the marketplace. And um, it was very well received very quickly. So uh, in the past 10 years, we have... Uh, increased our average sales price uh, about 1800 percent so it's been a phenomenal ride uh, building the team we now do exclusively high-end luxury custom homes and um, we have a team of uh, just over a dozen people obviously a large team beyond that of subcontractors trade partners and vendors Uh, but our core group is is 12 13 people uh, continuing to grow a little bit, uh, but what's really shifted in the dynamics for us as a company in the last few years has really been scale uh, and price point specifically. How do you get all of the sub trades to,
0: or do you worry about the sub trades lining up with your core values and you know the way that you operate? Is it more you just let them do their thing, and as long as they get it done on price and on budget, that's okay? Like do you just kind of keep them in a black box, or or How does does that approach work?
1: It's a great question, Cameron. You know, the the world as we know it has changed, uh, I think, even beyond our industry, but specifically in our industry, we have an unbelievably massive labor shortage. So that combined with the fact that we are very specialized in what we do, being kind of at the high end top of our market, we've got a unique skill set, which requires a unique skill set to boot. So, collaborating with our trade base, our vendors um, is ultra critical. We uh, we hold on to our quality people with both hands. Treat them extremely well. Get them bought into our experience, what we're doing, and we want them to be a part of that. And be proud of the work that they're producing along with us. And so, you, you know, you
0: mentioned the labor shortage, and and I had written down hiring complexity that. There really is a hiring complexity in your industry. I mean, the sub trades kind of take care of itself because they're dealing with their own hiring, but, but you have to, I stay, I guess, stay on top of that to know, like, Hey, these electricians were bringing in, is it the same team that was on the last three jobs, or is this a different team? So do you oversee that? And then secondly, you know, you've got your, your core team of the 12 or 14 kind of at the head office. I'd say there's a little bit of risk at losing, you know, one or two of those people. So how do you make sure that you've got those people handcuffed to the company so they don't go anywhere?
1: Yeah, that's an amazing question. So first part, honestly, is much more cut and dry and straightforward. We treat our trades and our sub base much like we do our employees, even in the onboarding process. It is a pretty intensive vetting. There is uh reference checking, not just uh I think, as you mentioned in one of your books, not just uh, for fear that we're going to check references, we actually go check references and we uh, walk for current projects. We talk to other folks that they're working with. Uh, it's pretty intensive before we bring them on and uh, making sure that the alignment's there, expectation for quality is there, uh, and that they're going to service us uh, to the extent that we're going to serve our client. So that that part is pretty well streamlined, organized, and efficient for us. Uh, though. A constant wheel in motion to make sure that we're shored up uh, as time goes on. Uh, The second part of that question is far more challenging. (laughs) Uh, One, because we're so specialized, two, because we're a small company, uh, every individual here plays an extremely critical part of the whole. So culture is uh, unbelievably critical, as I imagine it is with all companies, but uh, the impact of it here. can be uh, unbelievably positive or uh, turn things on their head very quickly so we work really hard uh, as a management team in particular to make sure that we keep folks shored up engaged love (laughs) one-on-ones love uh, perpetual okrs uh, personal and professional training and development i think investing in our people uh, above all things is really what makes a big difference
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's even why I launched my course, Invest in Your Leaders. It's why I even called it Invest in Your Leaders, was I think that if you grow them, if you invest in them, if you keep working on growing their skills, not only do you get more productivity out of them, but they feel more loyal to the company, they like working in the company, they feel cared about, right? So it's critical for sure. So. These people, though, that are at your head office, I mean, I, I had a friend of mine in Vancouver when I was doing the second home build that we did. I became friends with a contractor, again, higher-end contractor, and he would talk about some of these key employees. I'm like, dude, if you lose them, you're fucked. Like, this is not a good thing. So how do you know? Like, what what is it that you do to know for sure that you've got these people handcuffed to your company, that they're not going anywhere? Is it is it just money? Is it like is it a combination of seven things.
1: Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'd say uh, money is distant for us. Uh, support to everybody, right? We all got to make a living to eat and live. Uh, so uh, obviously, because we're specialized, compensation here is uh, is aligned with a specific skill set. But I think uh, to answer your question more specifically... Uh, I think the, the environment, the culture, uh, the encouragement, the coaching, the training, the personal development, those are really the things that tie them into what we're doing as a whole, uh, for, as a company going forward. We're actually in the middle of crafting our vivid vision currently for the future. We have touched on that. We just had a staff meeting this week and talked about high level what that means. Uh, to start the process of, first of all, understanding as a whole team what the point of all this is, uh, and two, to start to shape the understanding of how each individual here will contribute to the betterment of the whole.
0: Yeah, I like that. And it is true that you, you kind of mentioned we've all got to live, and we got to pay bills, and I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's just as long as that base is what is supposed to be everything else is what starts to matter right it is what starts to align because you could be overpaying people and they'll still quit because they don't like the team they don't like leadership they're frustrated they don't see value um so it sounds like you're stacking up all those different areas for sure what keeps you there i mean it's you know you're not uh you're not 65 years old you're not 25 but you know what keeps you in a company for nine or ten years that's a that's something that the baby boomers used to do
1: yeah it's uh it's amazing i'm a little bit old school in that regard Uh, i've been an old soul my whole life i've been on my own since i was 17 years old so you know very driven very motivated i'm very blessed to be in an industry that i love and a profession that i love Uh, i've got a ceo that has been incredible in letting me really have the reins in a lot of regard uh to start moving the company in the direction that we wanted to go in since the day I stepped in. So you've been out of the house since you were 17? Yeah. Have you got
0: kids? I have three
1: daughters and I now have five grandkids.
0: Are your three daughters out of the house? They are. What was it that got you to to leave at 17?
1: A lot of uh, challenging family dynamics for sure. And so uh, I just realized for whatever reason, early on in my life, that I I knew what I didn't want uh, for the future, uh, more so than I knew what I did want (laughs) as a young, punk, teenage kid. So I never had a problem with work ethic. I was in sports growing up uh, my whole life, played soccer through high school and into college. And so I very much had that competitive drive and nature in me to begin with. Uh, Like I mentioned, I was around uh, the construction industry in various aspects growing up. And so when I got locked in, uh, I think I was just really driven and motivated to do all the things in life that uh, I otherwise would not have had the opportunity
0: to do. So, when you said that you worked in a family business, was it your family's business that you worked in, or was it family, like family run construction companies that you worked in?
1: Yeah, family run construction companies all around everything uh, I was involved with growing up.
0: Okay. So, What are some of the differences with the family run companies? What are some of the dynamics there? There's a big organization up in Canada called the Canadian Association of Family Enterprise. And it's kind of like the COO Alliance, but only for family run companies because of all these idiosyncrasies that they have. What were some of the dynamics that you had to navigate, you know, working inside of a family run company?
1: Yeah, you know, by default, typically these are smaller companies. So generally speaking, there's a ceiling in most cases. You've got set positions and you've got a certain dynamic uh, at least uh, entering the situation regardless of acquisition or anything that may happen in the future. If you're dealing with 10, 15, maybe 20 people at the most and you're positioning yourself as a purchasing manager or construction manager, um, you're pretty well committing uh, pending your superior's age experience and uh, desires for their future careers you're pigeonholed a little bit and uh, what you can do uh, as far as opportunities go. So that's probably one of the biggest challenges. Do you sit back and
0: watch some of the family dynamics as well? Like, do you just watch the tempers flare and then they're best friends again an hour later? Like, do you watch, the, or do they, do they hide that stuff?
1: It's a good question. Not so much tempers flare. I think, uh, I think there is more emotion to it uh, because everything is very personal you know, it's kind of the double-edged sword, right? When uh, the highs are unbelievably high and the lows tend to be a little bit lower. (laughs) So uh, I think uh, with a positive mindset and outlook that I've been uh, thankfully able to participate in, focusing on those victories and the positives and the forward momentum have been kind of a constant mantra for me in life.
0: And then what about... um in these smaller companies so you're you said you're back to a smaller company again it kind of it kind of oscillates with the up and down sizes any differences there in terms of working with the smaller smaller firms are you able to be to stay more nimble like i like this whole like small head office with lots of sub trades it almost is the more modern way to run all companies um is there any lessons that you can give us there how would a marketing agency do this or a any other kind of company do this where they've got a few people at the head office and lots of fractional, you know, outsourced suppliers in all the different areas?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a constant challenge and a little bit of the debate that we're having with our vision going forward is what is fully integrated, knowing that we're in a position where the product that we're producing and the clientele we are serving, frankly, requires a very significant amount of, Hands on personal interaction, support, guidance, coaching, uh, between us and our clientele, even. So to provide an extremely high level of service that that takes people, right? We can automate a lot of things. Um, our communication process is very effective and succinct. But at the end of the day, uh, being a very high level service oriented company, um, that just takes folks. So. How much of that we do internally versus subcontract, we've actually, believe it or not, as small as we are, we've kind of gone the other way. We have brought architecture in-house. We've we've got interior design in-house. Most of our competitors are more fractured. And what I find in selling against that, frankly, is the breakdown in communication, the ineffectiveness of. Uh, playing the telephone game between multiple parties uh, throughout the duration of the process versus us keeping it all under one roof around one table and much more succinct allows us to be create a whole much uh, much more predictable outcome when it's all said and done yeah i was
0: actually going to ask you about some of that some of the differentiation between you and some of the other um, you know people in your industry or in your market because there's there's a lot of high end home builders out there how do you differentiate yourself how do you stand out from the rest is it winning awards it the work that you do is it your marketing
1: yeah we are having so much fun actually uh, i think marketing is one of the things we need to work the most on our our industry in general is pretty poor <laughs> on the marketing side of things we have been since the beginning of time in fact when i came on here we had an f-rated google website <laughs> it was one of the first tasks i took on and uh now we're now we're a-rated and, and flying high so I think uh, we we have such amazing opportunity uh, to set ourselves apart. I read the book, Blue Ocean Strategy, not long ago, uh, talking really about how you how you differentiate yourself in the market, how you separate, distance yourself from the competition. Uh, and that really rung true with me. So uh, not only did we bring architecture in-house and became a design build firm about four years ago, uh, we went ahead and uh, bit off the whole thing and went virtual and 3D with our architectural design process. So we're now, uh, for a company our size, one of the only companies in the country that is integrating uh, as a home builder, 3D and virtual design. In fact, we just brought in the Oculus headsets into the office and we're getting ready to put our first clients in them and let them virtually uh, walk through their, their home before we start construction.
0: Wow, is that is that kind of part of the sales process or is that post-sale?
1: It is, it's really that's really where it all starts with us now, really architectural design. And now we're watching so many other industries kind of fall in line with us. Restoration hardware, just put out a furniture line that's tied into our software. Thermador appliances have done the same thing. So now we're getting product integration, and creating an even more predictable experience from the virtual design into construction.
0: That's crazy. So literally from like, I'm giving you the vision for my home, you guys are creating the, the blueprints and the elevation drawings and everything. And then you're actually doing like the 3D rendering and I can actually then walk through my home with a headset. It's like being in your own video game. <laughs> Fuck. How how realistic is it? Like pretty darn good? or It's
1: getting better and better. Uh, Lumion is the software that we use. It's kind of that last layer of technology that really integrates that uh, gaming uh, type software and integration. So textures, materials are get, just getting better and better all the time.
0: That's crazy. All right. So. In terms of differentiation, that makes sense. What about, you You mentioned some of the people, is there anything that you're doing specifically to grow the people inside of your company? Is there anything you're working with them on?
1: Yeah, uh, and I can thank you for most of this. <laughs> Having uh, actually put my two primary managers, my operations manager and construction manager through our invest in your leaders course earlier this year, along with myself, they uh, immediately bought in and started reaping the benefits of a lot of fundamentals that we took for granted as a small company over time. So, formalizing, uh, we've always done OKRs, um, you know, really for a long, long time. Uh, and it's always been a very collaborative effort to the benefit of the team member. Uh, but I think taking that next step and integrating the one on one process in conjunction with creating agendas prior to every meeting and getting collaboration and organization in advance. Those two things have been absolutely massive for us as a company. It's pretty amazing when you give the people the basic skills
0: to do their job, how much more they excel, right? Like I just don't understand, you know, we would never send our kid off to play little league baseball without teaching them the basics of how to, you know, hold the bat and how to catch a ball and how to toss the ball. Otherwise they'd come home and go, Daddy, baseball sucks. It's like, no, Johnny, you suck at baseball. Right. And then we have all these businesses out there saying, oh, business is difficult. Business is really simple. If you give people the skills and the tools to, to grow their job. But so then what about you as a leader? I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time, the danger, because you you've been in the construction industry, what, for like 30 years now,
1: just about. Yeah.
0: So the danger is to say that you've got 30 years experience, right? Because some people have five years experience six times in a row right? They're they're doing this. They're doing the same thing that they've always been doing. I talked to a CEO and I said, you know, have you ever been trained on how to do a job interview? And he goes, no, but I've done like a hundred interviews. I said, yeah, but you might've done a hundred of them all wrong. And he goes, oh shit. Like it didn't even dawn on them, right? Like just because we've been doing it doesn't mean we're doing it right. So you're in the CEO Alliance as a member and you've gone through the invest in your leaders course, but I would imagine you've been working on your skills as a leader for a long time. Where have you had to grow yourself to you know stay not relevant but to stay to stay successful as a coo
1: yeah it's constant Um, i've always had a voracious appetite for learning particularly as it relates to our industry that's one of my biggest challenges in work-life balance is uh, my time management and what i do to continue to look forward to reach to explore to grow In a lot of ways uh, between my CEO and I, I share uh, a lot of that vision side of things. So I'm always kind of looking for the next step of how do we get better? How do we improve? And in doing so myself, I don't know a better way than to engage uh, with communities like the CEO Alliance to enjoy uh, my one-on-ones on a monthly basis with other members. Uh, to have small group breakout sessions, that has been a game changer. Got an amazing group of folks that are scattered around the country in similar industries. But just uh, in an hour, it's pretty amazing. I love being around people that are smarter than me. <laughs> doesn't take much. but uh, uh, it's great to just uh, not only hear the reality of the perspective that they bring uh, and shared uh, common struggles, uh, really, Shores me up, but then uh, I've always been of the mindset to take away from that and try and figure out where do I go next to shore myself up, to strengthen those weaknesses and to continue to find ways to uh, grow. So there's a follow-up book to Blue Ocean Strategy, (laughs) which is how do you keep distancing yourself from the group once everybody starts to realize what you're doing and starts to catch you? And so I use that also as kind of a motivator to continue to find ways to do things different, to branch out, expand. Well, and
0: like you mentioned, you're also getting idea. I call it ideas having sex. You know, you're talking to people that are inside of your industry in an accountability group in the CEO Alliance. Then your breakouts, you're meeting with lots of CEOs from other industries. So you do have this kind of cross-pollination of ideas from different industries, which is good as well. It's funny that you mentioned, you know, everybody's smarter than you. I I disagree because I think everyone in the CO Alliance feels like everybody else in the CO Alliance is smarter than them. So it's like, well, wait, this is like, it's almost regression to the mean. There's something that happens when you're in these, these mastermind communities where you start to shed the imposter syndrome and you start to gain a level of confidence that I think is important and powerful as well. So now you've mentioned one-on-ones a couple of times. Can you walk us through what your typical one-on-one looks like with your direct reports?
1: Yeah, oh, I love it. So uh they have become quite proficient in this. Uh it was I, I couldn't believe uh how short the learning curve was and the adaptation of this was. I mean we truly went from a sit-down meeting as a team talking about the concept to 30 to 45 days later we're weekly week in and week week out integrating this with high level of effectiveness. Um Uh, You talk about getting shit done, (laughs) man, that has been the most impactful part of this, you know, things that historically projects that may not be as fun or might be tedious or a little more time consuming, you know, historically get shoved to the back burner. Well, now with week in and week out accountability in conjunction with just general support and me being able to clear the path, we have become exponentially more effective and we're
0: getting a lot more shit done. So you're using the one-on-one structure that I cover in the Invest in your leaders course then. Yeah. Yeah, it really works. I got introduced to it 30 plus years ago when I was part of college pro painters and it was, it was massively impactful, right? Where, where you're there doing a one-on-one with any of your direct reports, but you're there doing a balance of three things, right? Direction, development and support. So you're giving them skill development, you're giving them emotional support. You're making sure they're working on the right stuff, removing obstacles you're not sitting there managing them and holding them accountable. You're almost sitting there supporting them and growing them. So it's awesome you're doing it. All right. I want you to go back and give the, well, we'll go to the 17 year old because you moved out at 17. And so I usually ask the 21 or 22 year old, Tim, some advice. What advice would you give the younger Tim that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known when you were getting started in your career?
1: Uh, that is, uh, it's unbelievably uh, easy for me because I consider this all the time. I did, ha- I had very little respect and some of this is just from my, my youth and upbringing. I had very little respect for experience and wisdom at a young age. I was very cocky and arrogant. I was, uh, I've always been, uh, incredibly hardworking. And so I found myself in a position I was managing by the time I was 22 years old, folks that were. 20, 30, 40 years older than me at the time. And so <laughs> that will make you a little big for your britches. Uh, but I think if I had to go back and do it all over again, I would absolutely listen, ask, engage exponentially more with those folks that I had around me at the time. I think I would have grown up a lot faster and certainly my learning curve within the industry would have been a lot quicker.
0: I love that. It's kind of a balance of confidence, right? Where, where cocky can, or confidence can go into cocky. It's if you can just throttle it back a little bit, but I love that, like learning from some of the wisdom of those that go before us too. It's profound how people that are older can just bring a level of wisdom that we discount because like, Oh, they don't know how to use technology. Yeah. But they understand the people side of the business and strategy and the day to day more than we ever will. Right. Or more than we will for the next 10, 15 years. Right. Were you at the event that we had uh, the April in-person CO Connect event that we had?
1: I was not. I had just joined the alliance. I think a few weeks prior. Wow.
0: Well, I hope you join us at the September one because we've got um, we got some. It's the September event at MIT is going to be incredible. in uh, in the April, we had Warren Rustand come out and speak, and I think he's eighty-two years old, and he he was there for two hours speaking with us, and he absolutely floored. members so make sure that you watch the video we uploaded his video to the member portal for the co alliance members make sure you check that one out it'll be amazing tim caldera thank you so much for sharing with us on the second command podcast really appreciate the ideas and the wisdom and uh, Collins builders certainly lucky to have you as our co and we're pleased that you're with us as a co alliance member as well
1: yeah it's absolutely my pleasure cameron thank you so much